And uh, open your Bibles now to Mark chapter 12. We're going to read verses 28 through to 34. So Mark 12 and verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered, or answered them well, he asked him, which, of the, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbour as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at this passage together now, we look at a passage which for many of us is incredibly familiar. It's one that we quote often. It's one that we have brought up in conversation many, many times. So Lord God, we pray that we would still look at your word with the excitement and zeal together this morning, that you might reveal to us the fullness of what you are saying here, which really does shape the entirety of our lives. Lord God, help us to be submissive to the work of your spirit in our hearts this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of years ago, I was talking to a uh, a mate who had just graduated from his teaching degree. And he was talking to me about things that did and didn't work in the classroom. Now, one example he shared, and he actually suggested that I use this sometime in a sermon. So I've used it before, but he's given me permission, so I'm going to flog it until it's dead. He used the illustration of kids who were just flooding him with questions, and he'd opened up the floor to to questions for his class. It was an interesting topic. And the questions were getting more and more silly as it went on. The kids were just feeding off each other and their silliness was just progressing. The last question that he asked was one where his patience, as we saw in the kids' talk, just tipped that little bit too far. For him, it was one question too many. He he stopped that exercise, he changed the lesson, sent the kids off to do something incredibly boring, just some rote learning from somewhere, copy down some equations from maths, I don't know if he's a maths teacher or what it was, he said, sent them off to do something very, very boring. Now, the next day, the boy who had asked the final question was brought to class by his dad. Apparently, it was a genuine question. It wasn't a silly question, and when he thought about it again, he said, actually, no, that was a good question. I was just sick of it. I just lashed out, I sent the whole class back. My mate said he was just absolutely gutted seeing this little fella so upset. And he realised that his reaction had been all wrong. Now, I'm sure we've been in, in situations where our patience has just 
run out. Perhaps we could imagine Christ being in a similar situation right here as we saw in the kids' talk. Go back to chapter 11, verse 27. There's been groups of people coming over and over and over again asking Jesus questions to to trap him, to, to prove him wrong, to discredit him, to say, this guy's a fraud, stop following him, destroy his reputation if we can't actually destroy his life. We've just read about a scribe who comes and asks another question. And it's a big question. And perhaps we'd be looking at this going, well, this guy's just following suit. Another religious leader coming to Jesus with a question and it could determine the future of Jesus' ministry. We're going to see the nature of the question and a few other things. But our point this morning, we, we see first the heart of the law that God's given. Then we see the scribe's answer to Jesus' answer. And finally, we're left with the question of what now? What, what do we do with what we learn there? So we see first the heart of the law. So verse 28, this scribe came. He'd heard Jesus reasoning with the others uh, and he comes with a question. And again, maybe we're thinking it's another trap. I think in this situation, we have something a little bit different. This guy comes to Jesus having seen Jesus answer wisely and he comes with what seems to be a genuine question. We're not revealed here any ill intent on behalf of the scribe. Perhaps it was there, but I think we have to read more into this to get that than is explicitly told to us in Mark's Gospel. What what seems to be here is a a curiosity that comes out from the scribe. Jesus having a dispute, he saw Jesus answered well, and his question is a big one, but it seems to be serious. Jesus seems to be aware of this. He doesn't simply throw the question off. He shows an incredible level of patience. And as I said in the kids' talk, that is one of the many, many things we can learn from Christ and seek to to do better in, in our lives too, having a greater level of patience. The question the scribe asks is one of those classic questions that I'm sure we all learned about in Sunday school if we went to Sunday school And the Israelites certainly learnt it. They put it above the doorpost of their houses. Which commandment is the greatest of all? Uh, Some translations, like what we've got here, which is the first commandment? It's a really crucial question to be asking. And Jesus answers it by quoting what we read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He quotes the Old Testament. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in Jesus quoting the Old Testament because it's not only God's revealed word, But this scribe was an expert in the law. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, were the really clear revelation of God's law to his people. So he's dealing with something that this scribe would be very familiar with, as well as bringing God's word to play here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The thing we have to understand before we look at God's law is the one who has given the law. This is exactly what God has set in place when he gave the law to the Israelites in the Old Testament. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The preeminence, the greatness, the incredible nature of God must first be recognized before we look at his law. God must come first. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Think of all those wonderful things that God has done that no other false God has done. He is worthy of all of your praise. 
He is fully deserving of being placed first no matter what we are doing in our lives. With that foundation that Moses has laid down and Jesus reminds the people of, Jesus lays out the greatest command and it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. There is so much attached to that. Think about what God is commanding us to do here. Christ is not just making a statement. He is giving a command that if we are genuine about a good and healthy relationship with God, then he says you will dedicate all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength to loving God. That cannot be falsified. That cannot be pretended. It must be genuine. It must be from the depths of our very being. It's a complete giving of ourselves to God and demonstrating at all times in every possible way that we can that God is the first love of our lives. Now, while the scribe only asked for one great commandment, Jesus goes on to give a second, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love God and love your neighbour as yourself. And the love of God is absolute. It's not just when we feel like it. It's not just when we've had a good day. This is constant. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your heart. And the love that we are commanded to show in the second commandment that Christ gives us here is a love that flows, can only flow from us loving God obediently and most importantly, willingly. Jesus is so helpful in giving us these commands in this order. Because you see, if you love God, if you love God completely, then every area, every other area of our lives will reciprocate that. We have been created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To do that, we have to do what Jesus tells us here, to love God with every fibre of our being. Every single molecule we have must be devoted to our love for God. That is a big ask. Uh, Every week we pray a prayer for forgiveness of sins. We do that corporately as a church and it's something that we should do personally as well. We're not perfect beings and we realise pretty quickly as we think about this that we can't love God on our own. That's just not our natural inclinations. But praise God for verses like 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 where we love God because God first loved us where we were incapable of loving God, God loved us and stirred something up in us that enabled us to love God. And as we love God, we keep his commandments. If God means anything at all to you, and he really should mean everything to you according to Jesus' summary of the law here, then we have to work hard at loving God. There's a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. I've mentioned this before. Uh, Don Whitney writes this. 
I forget the, uh, the initials of his two middle names, but they don't matter. Don Whitney wrote this book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And there's a couple of paragraphs I don't like in it. Overall, it's a good book. He talks about things like daily prayer and daily reading of the Bible as being these disciplines because they're not necessarily easy things to do. It's easy to say, but they're things we have to work at. We need to work at having time to pray, having time to do our devotions, and not just because whoever's in the pulpit on any given Sunday says it's a good idea, but doing it because it will help us to know God more. And the more we know God, the more we will love God. And the more we love God, the more we will love the people around us. This is something that starts often in the private, quiet place in our home, but doesn't stay there. The effects of this are seen publicly. I almost asked the kids, who's somebody annoying in your life? Might have been a bit too, honest, too much honesty coming back, so I thought we'll avoid that one. But if I was to ask you, the congregation, kids and adults, who is somebody annoying in your life? I'm sure you can think of somebody. It might be me. Could be somebody else. As we love God, it also means loving that really annoying person that we know. It means spending time with the person that the people around us tell us is unlovable. In doing these things, these are small ways that we can show the love that we are meant to show around us. See, the answer that Jesus gives here is not just a, a flippant Sunday school answer. He doesn't just recite Deuteronomy 6, which the scribe would have known by heart just to deal with the question and move on. He tells this guy about Deuteronomy 6. He tells us, God is reminding us of this here because this is the command that shapes our lives. And then we see the scribe responding to this. You're, you're right, teacher. Now, I said before, I think the scribe has come to Jesus with a genuine question. I think we see Jesus' commendation of the scribe in verse 34. You're not far from the kingdom of God as being confirmation this guy's on the right track. However, I will just note quickly that some people hear those words of the scribe as you're a right teacher, as a scribe trying to, to assert some authority on the conversation and give credit to Jesus' answer. I think it's just a, a genuine response from the scribe. Maybe there's that historical tension between Jesus and the scribes coming through here, but I don't think we necessarily see that, particularly given Jesus' words in verse 34. All that scribe, this scribe is really on the right track. He recognises the truth of Jesus answered. The scribe says, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He, and to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbour as oneself is more than whole, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. I think given the almost 
effervescent response from the scribe there, we see that he's almost in awe of the wisdom of Jesus to so quickly bring this up. The summary of the law, the greatest commandment. This is a, a man who has studied the Old Testament to become a lawyer in the Old Testament. And he is amazed by Jesus' handling of it. He is impressed in his own expert subject. And he seems to be so caught up in Jesus' response. And is this your response to what Jesus' greatest command is? Because sometimes we just hear this and we go, oh, that's nice to know. I might have a little bit more work to do. Maybe I should be a little bit more patient. Maybe I should do a little bit more of X, Y, or Z. But the scribe's not giving a response of little bits. He's talking holistic response here. Is that our response to Jesus' words? We can sometimes lose sight of the wonder of things when we're just reading through it or we've heard something over and over again. But we should react the way this scribe does. To love one's neighbor as oneself is greater than any whole burnt offerings or sacrifices. This guy's comprehension levels, are, they're taking off. You can almost see the scales being removed from his eyes and he doesn't quite get it. Jesus says at the end in verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God, but we see him growing in understanding and comprehension. He's not like the scribes, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all those other guys who were just pushing back against Jesus. He has heard God's word and he is responding joyfully to God's word. We're going to get to it in a few weeks' time, but Hosea chapter 6 and Isaiah chapter 1, 1 often combined together in the scrolls that were read from in the temple. We read this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. As with the way we can sometimes approach our prayers or devotions, we can sometimes do it just to tick the box. I'll admit there's been times, I admitted on Wednesday night in Bible study, there's been times, particularly lately, where you guys have been there. Being a new parent can be tiring. And sometimes you know you have to do your devotion, so you read the Bible. And you say a quick prayer at the end of it. But you haven't really given yourself to engaging with God's word. I've been there. The same thing could happen with the burnt offerings and sacrifices. The people of Israel could just go through the motions. But what we see from Hosea and Isaiah, what we see is that God really wants our hearts to be filled with a knowledge and love for himself more than burnt offerings. The things we do should be done for God. And we need to do those things with the right motivations and desires, otherwise it's just pointless. Let's take singing in church, for example. We could go to so many of the psalms that tell us to sing in church. I particularly like the psalms that talk about make a joyful noise to the Lord because that means I can participate too. One of my favourite songs growing up to sing in church was Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of Kings. Love that as a kid. That's a song of praise, of rejoicing in the sovereignty of God. 
But you want to know something interesting about that? I'd sometimes look around the church as a kid and see who was singing. And some people really didn't look like there was much joy in their hearts while they sang. It can just be going through the motions. You stand with everybody else. You say the words because they're up on the screen, but we're not really engaging in our hearts. Now, I say that with a pinch of salt because I have. The the mate who's a teacher would often drive into the the church car park at Budrum when I was uh, on staff there. My desk was next to the window. He'd drive past, he was a student, so he used the church Wi-Fi from the car park and he'd text me from his car saying, Callum, you look grumpy again. Some people just have a resting grumpy face. That's you, I'm not picking on you. Anna took a photo of myself and Zara yesterday. Both of us were sitting on the couch, chilling out. I thought we were both really happy. The turn of our mouths was the, the wrong way for happiness, I think. It wasn't upset, just didn't look happy. But we take these things. And when we're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of Kings, is there joy in our hearts as we sing that? As we sing, crown him with many crowns. We're going to sing at the end of the service today, rejoice, the Lord is King. Are we singing these songs just because they're there or are we singing these songs because we love God? I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice for the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The things we do. We might be able to cruise through life on our own. We might be able to make the people around us think that we've got it all together. But God doesn't look at the exterior. He looks on our hearts. God looks at what's going on inside of us. He knows our motivations and he knows what's going on there really. And that will show whether or not we've paid the tax of ourselves to God that we saw two weeks ago. If we want what we do to be acceptable to God, then it has to be done wholeheartedly and as a loving response to the love that God first showed us. The scribe, he is starting to get this. We're going to finish up tonight by asking the question, what now? Today, not tonight, sorry. It won't be that long. So Jesus responds to the scribe again. Verse 34, we've seen this a few times now already. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So looking at the the scribe's response to what Jesus said, we see he's beginning to be on the right track. But being on the right track does not necessarily mean that we're in God's kingdom. You are not far from the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not like earthly kingdoms we might picture it's not just travel just a few kilometers over and you're going to be there the kingdom of god has no geographical boundaries faith in jesus christ as our lord and savior is what makes us a citizen of the kingdom of heaven as we saw last week that includes believers who have gone before us in our bible studies the whole reason jesus came to earth was to save us from our sin and to add reality to that citizenship. This is why he lived and taught and died on the cross and was raised back to life, so that all who call him Lord 
might enter the kingdom where he reigns. This is why the scribe is close, but not quite there yet. His answer to Jesus was correct. His answer to Jesus incorporated a right knowledge of the law. It incorporated a right understanding of how our hearts are supposed to be inclined lovingly towards God and and lovingly towards the people around us. But there is not yet that profession of faith. So close, yet so far at this point in time. Now, we don't know. Maybe we're going to see this scribe in heaven. I hope we do. I really hope that we do. But we consider being close, but not close enough. Through uni, when I was studying at the Sunshine Coast, there was a, a couple I was staying with. And there was one night where he was out at a deacon's meeting for church and he came home and his wife had gone to bed early. And there was no spare key. So he slept on the patio. He can say he spent the night at home, can't he? But he wasn't really in the home. He was so close. He made it up those windy Budrum roads at night, home safely. It was even a bit of fog that night, which was unusual at the time. So close, yet so far. The difference between those who are inside the kingdom of God and those who are far off is just like this. And not yet in the kingdom of God. Now, again, we don't yet know whether this scribe came to have a saving faith in Christ, and I, I really hope he did. I'd love to chat with this fellow in heaven. But like the scribe, we should go away from this encounter with Jesus asking, well, how do I get to the kingdom of God? After reading of this interaction between the scribe and Christ, we should ask ourselves the same question. We shouldn't always presume upon our goodness. We should be asking ourselves, am I in the kingdom of God? And answering that question, we have to understand that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn our way in. Let's go back to the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. I do not keep that commandment. It's not just that I don't always have the inclination to keep that commandment. It's that I can't keep that commandment. I don't keep that commandment and I can't keep that commandment. Love your neighbour as yourself. I don't keep that commandment all the time and I can't keep that commandment all the time. If we are in the kingdom of heaven, we should rejoice. Rejoice at the faith that God has blessed us to give us what we could not earn for ourselves. And if we're not, this is something that requires looking into. We, we look at these two great commands, the summary of all of God's law. And as I look at that, I, I realize that I am a sinner who is in desperate need of Jesus every second of every minute of every day. I look at these commands and realize that the desires of my heart are more often than I would care to admit about loving Callum with all I have than loving God with all I have. My heart is often self-centered and not God-centered. And this is what Jesus commands it to be. 
Now, the great thing about this promise of being part of the kingdom of heaven, because there's an implied promise there that citizenship, that belonging to the kingdom of heaven is not just a hypothetical out there, but it can be a reality. The great thing about that is that these implied promises are not put before us to taunt us and remind us that we can't get them. The whole message that Jesus delivers is not to drive us away from him. We see people being driven away because they don't like what Jesus has to say. The whole point is to drive us to Jesus, realising our need for him, realising our absolute need to be dependent on him for everything that we have. When we read or we hear about Jesus, we shouldn't just marvel. Verse 17, the crowds marvelled. How many times have the people been in awe of Jesus? How many times have we read the people just stood there and always get this stunned mullet blown away? Wow, that was a great moment, but it doesn't go any further. When we hear and read about Jesus, don't just be amazed. Love him as he is God, the way that he commands us to. Keep confessing sin. Keep thanking him for forgiveness. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. We cannot do this for ourselves. But praise God for the work that Jesus was going to do in less than a week from this point. And praise God that the Holy Spirit, not just this ephemeral force in the world, but the third person of the Trinity, works in our hearts, teaching us, guiding us, and growing us in our love for God and our love for our neighbour. He is good, He is gracious. He has shown that to us. And our response should be to rejoice in praising God, loving him with all that we have. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word here. There are so many areas of our lives, in fact, every single area of our life that is affected by these great commands that Jesus gives us. Help us, Oh God, to not be prideful in thinking that we can do this on our own. Help us to acknowledge our need for you, our need for your help, and may you do great and wonderful things in our lives that we might know your blessings all the more and that through us, others might also know your goodness and your grace and your mercy. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.